following is a presentation of Cornerstone Bible Church in Virginia Beach. For more information on Cornerstone, as well as additional sermon downloads, please visit cbcvirginia.com. Good morning. Believe it or not, that was actually a little better than 9 a.m., so well done. Take your Bibles and let's go to Obadiah. And yes, it's okay to look in your index if you're not quite sure exactly what page number that's on. Let's go to Obadiah together. Hopefully over the next few weeks we'll become a little more familiar. If you want to put a little sheet there or maybe the ribbon in your Bible, that's fine. Something to remind you. Um, man, it is good to be together to both hear the word spoken and sung to one another, the prayers of, together as we praise God for who he is, as we encourage one another in righteousness to live before God. We're still sad, of course, to be missing many of you at home. We love you. We miss you. We are praying for you. And we long for the day that you will soon be back with us in our midst as well. Let's begin by reading uh, the first four verses in Obadiah. I almost said turn to Obadiah 1, verses 1 through 4, but there's only one chapter. So stick with me here. We're going to read the first four verses, and then we'll pray together. So Obadiah 1 through 4, this is the word of God. The vision of Obadiah. Thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. We have heard a report from the Lord, and the messenger has been sent among the nations. Rise up, let us rise against her for battle. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You shall be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rock and in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. Let's pray together. Dear Lord, you tell us that you, our king, are gently, gentle and lowly. We come before you asking that our hearts would not swell with pride. We know that our very makeup is simply the dirt beneath our feet, the dust to which we will one day return. In body, our, our makeup is, is not much different than animals. Whatever difference or form of intellect is a free gift from you of your goodness. Our minds and our bodies are undeserved gifts from you. Low as we are as creatures, we're even lower as sinners and rebels against you. We've trampled on your commands over and over again. Sin's deformity is stamped on us. It darkens our minds, touches us with corruption. How could we possibly be proud when we are, see ourselves in the light of Scripture? A continual state of humiliation is our due place, for we are less than nothing before you. So help us see ourselves the way that you do, and then that pride would, would wither and decay and die and perish. Humble our hearts before you, God, and replenish them with your best gifts. Just like the water never rests on a steep barren hill, but flows down to bring life to the valleys, so too, Lord, would you make us the lowliest of the low, so that our spiritual riches would abound in fruitfulness. When we're tempted to think highly of ourselves, grant us to see the wily power of our spiritual enemy. When we think that your word speaks to some other lowly wretch, may we rightly read it for ourselves. Help us stand with wary eye on the watchtower of faith and cling to with determined grasp to our humble Lord who leads us through this pilgrimage. If we fall, and we know that we will, let us hide ourselves in our Redeemer's righteousness. And when we escape, would you help us ascribe all deliverance to your grace alone? So Lord, keep us humble, meek, and lowly. 
It's in your name we pray. Amen. Well, Jordan read from, uh, from Proverbs 16 to start us out here today. We read from the beginning of it. Most likely, though, you know another part of Proverbs 16 a little better. It's verse 18, and I'll read it to you. Pride goes before destruction, and a haughty spirit before a fall. Throughout the millennia, many people have considered such a proverb to be foolish or out of touch or just really unnecessary. 1 Samuel 17, you have the champion Goliath, and he comes out to speak to the, the nation of Israel and the men and, of course, to David. And he says this to him, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. And the Philistine stead, said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. In that very same chapter, in verses 36 and 45, we realize that Goliath is not only speaking to the army. He's not even speaking only to the young man, David. He is defying the Lord of hosts with these words. In this chapter, we hear this, but it also has another familiar ring to it. Daniel 4. You remember the king, Nebuchadnezzar. We encounter him swollen with pride in Daniel 4, proclaiming himself to be deserving the object of all glory and majesty. In Daniel 4, we find him walking on the rooftop in the royal palace in Babylon. And he says, this is verse 30, it says it like this, And the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven, O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. And you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. There's a common thread through both of these stories, a common belief, a common rebellion. It's true that this is uh, something that man struggles with, and we know this from Psalm 14, verse 1. You know this, it says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. You may call it a miscalculation on their part, maybe a misunderstanding, but the Bible says it's neither of these things. Goliath's and Nebuchadnezzar's problem wasn't one of knowledge. It was a problem of pride and rebellion against God. Today, as we begin looking at the prophecy of Obadiah, God begins his message to Edom by highlighting this besetting sin of pride. Edom is just like every other nation, a group of people that must ultimately answer to God. And yet, they see themselves differently as someone who doesn't have to answer to him at all or as if somehow he doesn't even exist. So as we do so, we must understand that this Obadiah's message must be recognized as God speaking to us, to his people, to Judah specifically, of course, to Edom as well. But also what's happening here is God is revealing himself to his creation. It's his message. The message to Edom doesn't start until verse 2, because actually in verse 1, we're going to get a title and an introduction to what's going on here. What I want to do here is give you a quick outline. I'm going to put up on the screen in just a moment to help us understand the whole of Obadiah, just a high-level view of what's going on here. I'm guessing that most people who heard this prophecy when Obadiah spoke to them didn't have a handout. They didn't have it projected on a screen. They didn't have a PowerPoint. Uh, they didn't understand all these things and have to because instead they had something that we don't have, context and culture. They were used to hearing things this way. 
I mean, they were used to this type of presentation. They valued poetry greatly. If you consider this, they understood how it worked because if you could take your message and package it in a way that was both accurate and beautiful and memorable, think poetry, it was going to be a very good message. That's actually what we get here in Obadiah, something that they could use and understand. It was rare that the common person would go and open up a scroll and be able to read it. They, of course, heard it spoke. They heard it read. They heard it explained. But rarely would they ever actually get their eyes on a scroll to look at some of these things. And so this is very important for them. When we read it, of course, though, man, we need to study up. We're not used to this thing. We're not used to this poetry. We think poetry is maybe for, for lovers or for those that kind of like a niche part of English literature. That's not at all the truth. So we have to actually understand it together. So here's the outline of Obadiah. From the very beginning, with the first verse, there's two parts of this. We get the title of what's going on for the whole thing, but then we also get the introduction. He's going to set the scene of judgment for us. And we'll talk about that more today. The second thing that we get in verses 2 through 9 is the judgment itself, the destruction of Edom. Next thing, verses 10 through 14, we're going to get the reason for that judgment, or like, kind of like the cause. Let me give up the evidence that shows why this judgment is coming on them. And it here, as you see, is betrayal. The next thing we're going to see in verses 15 and 16 is the sentence. Destruction with the rest of the wicked nations around the world. And then lastly, he doesn't close with that only, but rather with a promise of restoration the ultimate victory of God, the king, in verses 17 through 21. Now, I'm going to try to post this on Realm as well, along with the worksheet that we normally put out, so you'll have a chance to look at it again. Don't worry. If you don't have it down now, it's okay. But this is the structure. The title and the introduction in the first verse, the judgment, the reason for that judgment, the sentence he's going to give out, and this promise of restoration. This is how this is going to work. It will be helpful for us as we work through the book of Obadiah. And hopefully, as you read it, as you study it, you will see the pattern, and this will actually aid us in our understanding of Obadiah's message. Today, we will begin with the title introduction, verse 1, and we'll also get the first three verses, verse 2, 3, and 4, uh, of this next part, the judgment. I, talked, uh, I thought of for a while about just doing verse 1, but I think having verse 1 and introducing us into verse 2 through 4 will be helpful. So this is what we're going to do. Let me start out with verse 1. I'll read it to us, and we'll get going. The vision of Obadiah. Thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. We have heard a report from the Lord, and a messenger has been sent among the nations. Rise up. Let us rise against her for battle. All right, so let's start out. What's, what's going on here? The very first line is actually the title of the entire prophecy. It is the vision of Obadiah. As we said last week, we aren't exactly sure who Obadiah is. Uh, we have some guesses what it might be, but we actually don't have any certainty specifically about who this is. But we do understand that he is a prophet of God. How do we know that? We know it by the fact that his prophecy comes true. And we recognize that the Pentateuch tells us the exact same thing. How are you to know a prophet when, there were, when it's actually a prophet of the Lord versus a prophet of themselves? When the word becomes truth, when, it, when the, what they said actually happens, you know that this one is from the Lord. As we know from history, what Obadiah said was certainly true. What's far more important than exactly understanding his identity and all the stuff that we might like to know about him is the fact that he communicated God's message to his people. That's why we're talking about the vision of Obadiah. Obviously, we would consider a vision as something that you see, and that's right. Oftentimes, we would think of like uh, John. When he writes Revelation, he gets caught up and he sees all these things. 
And that's correct. That may have been what happened. But what's more important here is for us to understand that he perceives God's revelation. It could be that he saw this all. It could be that it's in a dream. It could be that he heard it. We're not exactly sure, but we realize this is a communication from God. The term simply means that God revealed his word and his will to Obadiah. And thus, Obadiah experienced God's revelation. Uh, man, so even from this title, do you get what's going on here? We ought to be thankful that God speaks to and through sinful men so that we might hear and know what we are to do in this life. This is just a simple command for us to know and love and read God's word, guys. It's like a, it's a softball. This is a great news that we aren't left to figure out with ourselves what God expects of us. He shows us and calls us to know him and what he expects. We're thankful for this, and we want to walk in obedience to what he has revealed to us. So this is the title. After the title, though, we're stated this prophecy is about the nation of Edom. He says, thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. Last week, we spent significant time talking about this audience. Who was this? Who was Edom? If you remember, I talked about several different things, but I'll do a kind of a brief overview. They're the descendants of Esau, of Jacob and Esau, the two brothers. The land that they live in is also called Seir, S-E-I-R. You're going to see that throughout the scriptures. They were very well situated as a country in a mountainous region. Not necessarily a high producer of fruit and food, but what it was lacking in that, it made up in military strength and wisdom and opportunism. They were very good at what they did. Edom was rich because, if you remember, where they were situated on the King's Highway, everybody had to take their caravans through their territory. And so they exacted tolls and all kinds of different things. Of course, spices and uh, goods and commodities would come all through there. So they became quite rich. They were clever and industrious. They were safe and secure in their beautiful natural fortress. And of course, they were also, therefore, quite militarily strong. This is the nation that God is addressing, Edom. He says, we have heard a report from the Lord, and a messenger has been sent among the nations. Rise up. Let us rise against her for battle. For a moment, I want you, for a moment, just to try to step out of the box with me and think about what's happening here. Obadiah is taking us into some sort of a heavenly council room. He is getting a view. He's giving us a view of ultimate reality, what's going on behind the curtain. As far as I know, there's no place on earth that you can go specifically and walk into this sandy area and find this council room. What's happening is God is opening his eyes, having him perceive this scenario. Think for a, room then, for a moment then of a room filled with angels and God communicating his word to them. Consider that Obadiah has been given a vision into what is really going on behind the scenes. Obadiah is watching as God begins to talk about the nation of Edom to his servants and his messengers. And Obadiah is reporting about what is going on in this scene. He begins by telling us that he is one of many in the room. He's not alone. It's not just to him. And that this message is not only for himself either. It's not just to stay with these people, but for all of Judah to hear as well. He says, we have heard a report from the Lord, and a messenger has been sent among the nations. Not just Judah. Something else is going on here. Obadiah has heard what God has to say about this nation to these messengers. And he's telling us that the message that they all heard didn't stay in that room. In fact, that was the nature of it, was to actually go out and tell the nations this message. He's telling us that these messengers, and again, I would probably think it's possibly angels, we're not exactly sure, 
These messengers have been sent among the nations to deliver God's message. And what message is it? You see it right there. Rise up. It's a battle cry. Let us rise against her for battle. God somehow inflames the hearts and desires and minds of these nations to fight against Edom. He calls them to battle. I mean, this is what's happening. I'll admit, I, I don't know exactly how this all happened. I have no idea if he came to them in dreams or if he came to them actually in physical form and somehow persuaded these different armies to have something against Edom and to kind of have something brewing in their hearts or if he worked in the affairs of men to bring kings and governors to actually desire to have Edom. I'm not sure what he did, but I'll tell you the truth. He definitely does what he wants to do. God communicates through these messengers exactly what he calls them to do. He calls them to rise up and to go against battle in, against Edom. I don't know what happened exactly, but it's clear that the sovereign Lord of all creation had his messengers communicate to these nations, and the nations listened and did God's will. Um, this shouldn't surprise us, though. If, if you think what I'm saying is crazy, like this is like magic stuff, like what are you talking about? Is that really what's going on here? Do, if you've read the Exodus narrative, you know that he works in the hearts of men. It is he who hardened Pharaoh's heart. Other places throughout the, the scriptures, we watch as he takes whole nations and makes them a scourge against Israel and Judah. We know that Assyria and Babylon are tools in the hand of God to bring about his will and work in his people. One of the most important lessons then that we can learn right here from the beginning is that the God of Judah is not some sort of regional deity. He doesn't only stay within the boundaries of Judah and Israel. He's not a local God, your friendly local God who lives down here, and as long as you keep him happy, it's good. No, no, no. He's the king of the universe. He is over all kingdoms. He is sovereign over all of creation. And make no mistake, this is true for us today, guys. This wasn't just Bible times as though he stopped working anymore. No, he is still the God of creation. He has not changed. He is still over all things and sovereign. He still holds sway for every king, every governor across the whole face of the globe. No, how, no matter how much we may think and how godless they seem, God will have the hearts and he will do what he wills. He still speaks and sends messengers to accomplish his purposes throughout the kingdoms of men. So I'll ask you, how does that make you feel? Does it not give you a sort of comfort that our God, despite them in being in the midst of mayhem and political upheaval and perhaps even disaster for our own country at one day, who is in control? Our God is fully in control as the sovereign Lord of all creation. As much as these things are going on, we can have confidence in him and him alone. You and I can have this confidence and can trust God in the midst of suffering and injustice. Our God is in control. He is sovereign. Now, this is how Obadiah set the scene for us. From the very beginning, we realize that God's word has already gone out, and perhaps now it's rattling around in the brains and hearts of Edom's future enemies, that they will someday go against Edom. God is at work, and he will do what he intends to do. As we begin verse 2, then, the aspect changes. Now, I'll admit, when I was first reading Obadiah, these first two verses, I didn't know who was talking at what time and how this was going, and it can get real confusing really quickly. But that's the break. After verse 1, we have a little bit of a break, and the aspect changes. It's no longer God speaking to his messengers. Now God is speaking directly to Edom. He says this in verse 2, Behold, 
I will make you small among the nations. You shall be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rock, in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. Next week I'm going to take five through nine. What we're going to do is we're going to get more specifics about Edom's false confidence and the extent of what it means that they will be brought down by God. But for this week, I want us to see this headline statement in all its glory. It communicates the heart of the problem and what God is going to do about that problem. He says, behold, look, listen up, pay attention. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You shall be utterly despised. If you're Edom, the first words that you hear from the God of creation and of the universe are those of destiny. But they aren't words of hope. They're going a place where they do not want to be. God says their destiny is headed towards insignificance, to smallness. And the grammar even declares it even worse than that. The grammar actually says, I have made you small. It's the perfect. So I've made you small. But it's rightly translated, I will make you small, because he's saying, what I'm telling you right now is as good as done. This is what will happen. It's going to be finished this way. He says that Edom will be small among the nations. God is certainly talking about the number of their people when he talks about small, and maybe perhaps even their borders in some way, but it's, it's worse than that. He's actually talking about the fact that they will become a nation that does not matter. They will be insignificant and small. When you think about today, you think about the world players, maybe you think about the Olympics when all the different nations come together, or perhaps you read the news and this nation's doing this and this nation's doing that, you have even somewhat of a rough list of which nations are important and powerful and significant for one reason or another. Some are quite large, many people, strong navy, strong military perhaps. Others are very smart, technology sector is booming. Other ones are important for other reasons. Maybe they have extensive natural resources or capital, or maybe they just simply have some sort of distinguished, valuable society to everybody else. But then there's the rest of the countries. Maybe we, maybe we know some of their names. Most of them were like, oh, yeah, that's a country probably somewhere. I have no idea about them at all. But, yes, I'm sure that's true. And if we really think about it, they may be a nice place to visit or maybe they're a nice place to get coffee from. Um, but otherwise, they're really not that significant in the realm of world politics. They're small among the nations. They're unimportant. God is saying that Edom will become small among the nations. They will become insignificant. They will not be world players, but it's worse than that. And we know this. They will not be world players. They will become despised by the rest of the nations. He says utterly despised. Not just that they will be annoying to people, not just that they will be forgettable or insignificant just in some small way, but that these nations are worthy of mockery, and this nation is worthy of mockery and scorn. They are despised by all of their neighbors. Remember, when we, begin, when we began the introduction of the prophets, I said that there was nothing new in these prophecies. Do you remember that? It's all based in coming out of the Pentateuch, especially about the fact that they told them that the, for obedience you'd get blessing. For disobedience you had punishment and cursing. I want you to listen to a few different passages that talk about when you don't obey what's going to happen. What we're seeing here is actually the curse upon those who will not obey God's law. Listen here. 
Leviticus 26, 22, and I will make you few in number so that your roads shall be deserted. Leviticus 26, 36, and as for those who are left, I will send faintness into their hearts in the lands of their enemies. The sound of a driven leaf shall put them to flight and they shall flee as one flees from the sword and they shall fall when none pursues. Uh, Deuteronomy 28, 25. The Lord will cause you to be defeated before your enemies. You shall go out one way against them and flee seven ways before them. And you shall be a horror to all the kings of the earth. Despised. Deuteronomy 28, 43. The sojourner who is among you shall rise higher and higher above you and you shall come down lower and lower. Now you might think, that's interesting, Chris, but we're talking about Edom. Weren't all these promises and curses made to Israel? Well, that's right. You're exactly right about that. But I'm still right. Listen to me for a minute. Deuteronomy 30, verse 7. And the Lord your God will put all these curses on your foes and enemies who persecuted you. In other words, Edom has become an enemy, a foe who has persecuted Israel. And and God's curses are upon Edom for her wickedness. In this way, what we're seeing here is God's promises and warnings of punishment play out in a real time. He told them this would happen in the Pentateuch, and it's coming to fruition now in Edom, that this is exactly what will happen to them. May I just remind us, maybe we don't see God in a way that we might think is clear and significant, but he will not be thwarted. This is our God, the one that if he says something, it will be true. It will happen. You can totally depend on what this God says, and we must not test him. This God will be true to what he says. He goes on then in verse 3. Look at this. The pride of your heart has deceived you, you who live in the clefts of the rock, in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, who will bring me down from to the ground? Let's start at the beginning there. He says, the pride of your heart has deceived you. These people believed in themselves. They believed in their own accomplishments and pride and their own self-reliance. They believed that they were great, that they had believed in a sense that they had made their country great again and were strong in this way. They believed their own story, their presumption and self-confidence was overblown though. It didn't make sense in the real picture. The way that they viewed themselves in pride had deceived them into believing a different reality. Now we know this. Pride will do this exact thing to us. It will deceive us. It will make us believe a different narrative that simply isn't true. We kind of tell ourselves the lie enough times and it becomes true, right, in our hearts. I'm a pretty good employee. I'm a pretty good father. I do pretty good at my life. I make good decisions and I think the decisions have turned out well and I do it the best way and the ways I raised my my children and, and saved my money and chosen good lifestyle has put me in a great place. Kind of, I think I've kind of earned this. Brothers and sisters, remember that pride and arrogance will always blind you from the ultimate truth. It will give you a different narrative, and this narrative only leads to us being deceived. But you may ask and say, well, well, Chris, that's true, but look at the evidence. I mean, my life really does look like this. I mean, I, I really have been doing quite well. I mean, I have all the right indicators that are marked off. I've sacrificed and I've, I've done really well and got the right insurances. I have a strong house that's paid off. That's a really good thing. I've, I've saved my money and produced good kids and I've helped my community and doggone it, people like me. I'm doing pretty well. The evidence is there. Okay, true. I actually won't dispute it. It's actually true. 
you have done some incredible stuff that seems to matter. But so did Edom. Edom was the exact same way, guys. Look here, Obadiah says, The pride of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rock, in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. God says, you're right. It's true. You really are in a great situation. You've really done well for yourself. I mean, I know, you know, the country that you're situated in, man, it is tough. You've literally lived in the mountains where it's almost impossible to conquer you. It's impenetrable. I mean, you've rightly believed that you're situated in a good place that's very difficult to get to. You literally live in a lofty dwelling. I mean, consider that for a moment. In this time period, height was a major advantage in battle. We don't have planes and other things to be able to do here. So having to work up to this was a major advantage to those who actually were in that place. And then add to that cliffs, plateaus, uh, narrow passageways of access, and you could rightly say that Edom was almost impenetrable from enemies. They were very secure. And the result of all this was that Edom thought, or as the text says, they say in their heart, who will bring me down to the ground? How is it possible that I could lose? Here it is. Here's the statement that we hear the echoes of Nebuchadnezzar and Goliath resounding through. Ones of pride, swollen, who are deceived. We need to realize that there's one major problem here. They may even be right in their estimation that they have no natural enemies. I mean, they have done everything right. Uh, they have the right alliances. They have the right protections. They have the right resources. They are untouchable. But they have one major problem, and it's that they didn't look up. They didn't think about those that were above them or the one. God validates what, what they say. They, he says and recognizes that they are very high up. In fact, he heightens it. Though you soar aloft like the eagle, and though your nest is set among the stars, let's go even higher. From there, I will bring you down, declares the Lord. I don't care how high you think you can go, how high your nest is, what kind of an eagle you think you are over all these things, the Lord will bring you down. Friends, are we not the same way oftentimes? Allowing our own hearts to be swollen with pride over our good decisions or perhaps our securities or the resources or the things that make us better than other people? It's not true that we believe all this stuff and sometimes it swells our head and we can't quite get to the truth anymore because we've been deceived? Do we not believe that although things might go badly here and there that sometimes we uh, think that our future on earth is pretty bright? It's going pretty well. As much as I have it down, this is going to go turn out well for me. The major miscalculation is that there is no God in the universe. That's where they messed up. It's what we learned from Psalm 14, remember? Where we kind of started today. But Psalm 14, to us, just sounds so stark, so not our narrative. I mean, like, we're Christians. We believe in God, right? Like, we're not ones that are foolish, not like that. But I stopped short in reading Psalm 14. I only read one part of it. And I want to read Psalm 14, 1, 2, and 3 and see if we can stand up to it. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. Okay. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man 
to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. I mean, Paul will go back later and use this exact passage when he's talking in Romans 3, the fact that there's none that are righteous. No, not one. Edom isn't only the one, he, Edom isn't the only one who is wrong and in sin. Edom just happens to be the one that's so deceived to the point that they are willing to declare their own pride before all the nations and before God. How about you? Are you deceived? Is it possible that you are believing a narrative that simply isn't true? Friends, Pride will deceive us. It will tell us something different, and we'll live by that narrative. As you and I hear these words this morning, recognize that our situation doesn't impress God. Whatever security you think you have, it's nothing. The Lord reaches down to take Edom out of their high place. And so it's right for us to say then, what is the response for us? If this is true, and each and every one of us has sinned against him, and we tend toward pride, thinking highly of ourselves when in fact we are made of dust. Therefore, the response is clear. Repent. Turn from your pride and humble yourself before God. Believe what the scriptures say about you and stop thinking that you are safe and secure because of your current situation. It's clear that we are not to be puffed up with the pride and think that we are anything before God. It's clear that pride comes before a fall and that a haughty spirit comes before destruction. But is that the whole message today? Is it a moral message like, hey, everybody go and don't be proud anymore. Stop being proud. Stop it. Stop it. It's a good message. It's true. And the Bible says it, right? Um, it's a good message. But it stops short of any sort of real answer to our problem. What are we to do with this desire and struggle to be lifted high, to be lofty, to, to have an edge, to be great among other people and find ourselves in a high position? Is there any place for a human to stand before God and be exalted? There was one man who was not lifted up on Mount Esau, but rather on Mount Calvary. There was one man who did not think that equality with God was something to be grasped or to be held onto, but rather took on the form of a servant and gave himself for the good of others before God. There was one man who experienced a life that was not lived among the stars, not characterized as a high-flying eagle by those around him. Instead, he was a prophet of an insignificant place called Nazareth. Can anything come, good's good come out of there? a place that you might even say was despised. Jesus, of any men throughout history, could have exalted himself as the greatest man ever to walk the face of the earth. And he would have been right. Would have ever been able to boast in himself. But we learn in Mark 10 that he says, I came not to be served, but to serve. And because he did that, which no other man was able or willing to do, he earned the right to sit where no one else was able to sit. Philippians 2, 8 through 9 says this, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Ephesians 1, 20 through 23, Paul explains this exaltation even further of Christ. He says that God raised him from the dead 
and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. You do realize, don't you, that we too will be exalted, right? That we too will be glorified. Now, how'd you make that switch, Chris? We're just talking about Jesus, and now you're talking about us. What are you talking about? Well, it will never be, and it will never happen by the fact that we are able to earn our place among the stars. That's not what's going to happen. The life that you and I live here now can seem so final, so ultimate, so I want to get as much as I can out of this. We're tempted to, to work and scrap and try our best to, to put something together that matters. We want to have significance in this life so badly. We do we want this, and, and it's right in one sense, but each of us naturally goes the way of Edom. But God's pathway to glory is the opposite of we, what we see in Edom. God's pathway to glory is through Jesus Christ, is through the cross, is through humility and service to God. 1 Peter 5, 6 tells us, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that the proper time he may exalt you. Paul prays this prayer. You've got to catch this. In 2 Thessalonians 1, 11 through 12, 11 through 12 you've got to get this. In this prayer, we get our connection with Jesus and his intentions for us. He says this, To this end, we always pray for you, that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power, so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him, according to the grace of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's an amazing statement. He's saying what he wants to see in the church is the glory of Jesus Christ. So that when people look at the church, they say, glory to God in the highest. But he doesn't end there. He also says, and you in him. In other words, that you will join in his glory someday by his merit alone. When, when that happens, they won't be like, hey, man, Chris is a good dude. You know, this person's so great. They're, all eyes will be on Jesus. But we will experience the exaltation with Jesus Christ. This is what he says, and it's according only to the grace of God and our Lord Jesus Christ. If you didn't know it before, guys, let me tell you, Christianity is the way of the cross, is the way of suffering and pain, uh, not only for our king, Jesus, but for us also. In many modern-day preachers will tell us that you can have all the good stuff now if you'll only surrender to Jesus. It's a lie. Contrary to this unbiblical philosophy, Jesus says in this world, you will have tribulations. You will have trouble. The Christian is called not to be highly esteemed among men, but to be loved by his creator God. A Christian will experience pain and hardship and may even be despised by the world. For remember that our Savior, too, was despised. Last Sunday night, and we had several people, but AJ uh, joined us as a member along with his wife and others, and we praise God for that. In his testimony, he quoted from 2 Timothy 2.13. Remember this or not? It was an appropriate way for us to close last time, and I really appreciate it. And I think it's an appropriate way for us to close today as well. I'm going to read from verse 8 to 13, and I want you to catch this. Here it is. Remember Jesus Christ, 
risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is our Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with him, we also will live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. It's not surprising to you is that we ended up back here, right, at the gospel, the glory of Jesus Christ alone. Christianity is not a, a, a moralistic religion. It is the worship of Jesus Christ, our only hope. In him and him alone do we find our righteousness. In him and him alone do we find exaltation. This is only going to be through him. Brothers and sisters, do not seek to be exalted here. Do not be deceived by your pride. Humble yourself and trust the one who condescended, took on flesh, who obeyed the Father, the God of all creation perfectly, and earned a seat at the Father's right hand of the majesty on high. If you will you too can say with Paul in Romans 8.34, who is to condemn? Not even God. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, he was who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Let's pray together. Dear Lord Jesus, we thank you for condescending. We thank you for a picture of what true humility is. Of all people, you had every right to proclaim how awesome you were. And Lord, we know that you gave yourself as a ransom for all. We know that you did not come to be served, but to serve. Lord, teach us to walk the way of the cross, to walk the way of self-denial that is not for self-denial's sake, but for the sake of knowing Christ. We thank you for your great love. And we ask you to help us now. We not live in pride, that we would live by your grace obediently in humility, that we would look like Christ. Thank you for your grace. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.